Boom. Live? I'd like to welcome everybody to uh, our first edition of what we hope is going to be uh, many Monday interview sessions with According to Hip Hop. Uh, this evening, for those of us on the East Coast, uh, it's 8 o'clock. For those of y'all on the West Coast with the glove, I know it's 5 o'clock. But we have uh, Chris the Glove Taylor, who uh, is a DJ, uh, musician, producer, engineer, uh, hip hop savant extraordinaire. We're happy to have you on, Glove. How are you today? Fabulous, man. I appreciate you guys so much, man. Thank you for having me. Um, you know, you kind of uh, sparked our ire, um, you know, uh, with uh, some of the comments. You actually jumped in our comments. So my first question for you, because we're based out of Atlanta, is how'd you get wind of us? I got a buddy named Doobie Sonics. He's the my historian. He sent me a link to your chat and said that some people were speaking on something that was regarding something that I knew. And I jumped in and said, and I read the, I love the answers. And that's, that's what I did. I jumped in. What I was going to say is, you know, some of us were actually in the room and were there. And a lot of people say things and it just, I love it because it's humor to me. I laugh at people's conjecture and their hyperbole and the things that they say when they think that they think that they know. <laughs> no, I love it. I love that you say that because a lot of like what we do is conjecture and it's fodder. So to have somebody uh, to have somebody like you who was quote unquote, like actually in the room and has been in a lot of rooms for a lot of moments is um, is super big. And that's part of why I've been wanting to interview you so bad is because the more I've kind of unfurled your story, it's like, well, you don't been in a room in a lot of special moments with a lot of special people. And although your name hasn't often been said, you must be pretty special yourself to find yourselves in all these special rooms with all these special people, you know? That's not an accident when it keeps on happening over and over again. Right, you're right. Right. So I guess uh, I want to kind of start at the top because I believe from what I've been studying of you, you started off as a DJ, correct? That is that. Well, yes. I learned how to play the organ first okay. as a child, so that thing. But I started off I played the organ in church. I, I think my I think all my performance skills came from the church, bro. Literally, I, I listened to the guys talk about that. But I was a boy acolyte, child soloist. I sang Moon River to be in the Mitchell Boys Choir, like at ten. So I just been you know kind of doing this. But the DJ thing allowed me to be all the way myself. So yes, okay. I'm day first. Well, I, I, I was going to ask you, you know, most people that are like multifaceted and talented uh, in music like you are usually come from either the church or a music family background. So I guess you kind of got the church part covered, but are there other musicians in your family prior to you? You know, the funny thing is, mom, I grew up in the 60s and, you know, 70s, 80s, whatnot. But then you had to learn an instrument and my mom had a, we had a piano in the house. So she would play the piano, open her hymnal to sing the songs. And she could sing. She got a beautiful voice, and but she never did it as professionally. But I, I truly believe that whatever skills I got came from her and my dad. Somewhere in our family, somebody's doing because I'm the first, and everybody's so excited in my family that I've been able to accomplish some things. It puts us in the, not just in the music business, but as a pillar of music business. So our family now is 
is one of the names of families that can be known and associated as I move forward too, because I got some other things I want to do. But yeah, it's it's uh the church because I, I yeah man I learned at Oregon and I I played the church, but I was a hustle. It's another sidebar. I was in high school. I was in a marching band. Okay, so. We had the baddest marching band in the, in the country damn near the year before I got there. When I got there, everybody graduated. It's like 30 people left. So now we're this tiny band with all these big names. So we show up. and So we had to do something fly. We didn't have enough trumpets to play melodies. So I played the organ. So I, I learned how to play the piano and Fender Rhodes. Pianos in my house. They're different instruments. So I learned how to play the roads, and I would play the roads. We would play hot songs. Since we could play the roads, we got like Shame and, you know, Juicy Fruit. We playing all these songs because I can play them. And they sound like the record at the football games. And they used to roll me out on a platform. And I never really thought about that until the last couple of years. I was actually on stage in high school football games. Like, that's the trip. <laughs> yeah. So, so, yeah, that's um, no, 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 absolutely. That actually, uh, where did you go? To, now, you're from West L.A.? Are you from West L.A.? Yeah, so I'm from actually south and then West L.A. I went to Inglewood High School. Well, that's what I was going to ask you. Where did you go to high school? You went to Inglewood. Okay. Um, where did your nickname, The Glove, come from? Okay, so after I graduated from high school, 1979, I graduated. I went to college to be an aeronautical engineer. I'll, that's another thing I laugh about when people say... Well, you know, you're not a rocket scientist. I just laugh because they're not in the room and they don't know that I went to college for rocket science. So I dropped out, though, because I wanted to make the space shuttle and it took off in October or some sometime during that year. It took off, screwed me all up. So I quit school. And uh, in like 1980, the mindset, I, I was walking out on the street, Epiphany, be a DJ came from inside. I said I wanted to be the best at something. DJ comes up. Now, in 1980, ain't no DJs. There's only Grandmaster Flash that I've heard of. Uh, so I hadn't even really heard of him at that point, just the, not the scratching part, but the rapper's delight in the, the message part, or whatever the songs came before. I think it was uh, whatever their first song was. It was before the message and all that. They had some mixtape stuff. So... I didn't hear any of those things until once I got involved into hip hop. So at this moment, 1980, I started learning how to DJ. I have to learn how to put the equipment together, figure out what a turntable is as opposed to a record player, as opposed to that thing in my mama's house that played records. That's furniture. <laughs> like right. no YouTube. There's no right. te- There's no film school, music school, none of the above. There's not even terms for what we're trying to do. Like those terms, loop, sample, uh chop those are our terms we made those they don't up. even really exist yet then do they no we made those up so that we could explain what we were doing right you know so then they became these words that people throw at me well if you sample how come you a sampler producer man we make that shit up the you're saying the language you use comes right. from us forget about the muse that reminds me of another story i'll get to but it's like being the coke brothers the Koch brothers don't own all the clothing companies. They sell all the clothing companies polyester. Yeah. All of them. So right. that's what I'm talking about. That's the kind of mindset. So anyway, 
yeah, I, I lost track. Where was I? <laughs> We're just talking about how your name came to be the glove. Yes. So from that DJ point, I, I'll fast forward to uh, I was uh, had gotten to the point where I knew what I needed about turntables. And now I need to work for a mobile disco company to uh, be able to have turntables for the parties that I DJ for free. I'll figure if I can work for them, I can get my turntable for free. And I can mm. make money at these parties because they only pay like a hundred bucks. Right. So, oh, he said, I want you to deliver something to this place downtown. They got a thing kind of like what you do with the records. You might like this. <laughs> so as an older dude, you know, I'm so go deliver the speakers, serve with Vegas speakers. They got these big metal knobs on the end. If you and you got to stack them together and on top and you pinch your fingers in there. So I bought these gigantic gardening gloves, had the most feathers in them the softest i could find right just for this job so i got these i'm skinny right i weigh 160 pounds and i got these gigantic mickey mouse looking gloves on so i'm rolling the speakers in and stuff and so boom boom, boom. so these cats come up to me after i set it up and say hey we hear you're a dj i say yeah i'm a dj i'm probably better than everybody you got in there because i was on one back in those days right i was djing for all the car clubs uncle jam army i'm out so they're like oh yeah well big dj what's your name dj name I never had a DJ name, bro. I, I said, Chris, DJ Chris. Them two white dudes laughed. One of them was from Paris and the other one was from Belgium. And they both came via New York City. They was like, they got origins in the beginning of hip hop there. So they brought a club. They were the first to bring a club to LA like that. Mm. So they said, nah, man, we have a marquee and we want you to come in Friday at 11. We'll put your name up there. You play at 11. So I go to the club. It's called Radio. That's the one where they made the movie Breaking From. So that movie was made about the club. If you notice, they spent an awful lot of time in the club and break dancing and doing the things. Well, that was my next question. Set of questions was actually about the movie Breaking. So you're kind of giving me my own segue into what my next questions were. Yeah, absolutely. So that club, when I when I came Friday, I looked in there and it was exactly like. The get down, is that that thing? Was that it? The get down? Yeah. When they went and the dude goes, you don't know Grandmaster Flash? You don't know the such and such and such and such? And he said, come on, I'm going to take you to the get down. And they go to that club and they walk in the door and mm -hmm. they walls with graffiti. Yeah. I walk in and see graffiti. Like, bang. Like, whoa. I never seen it on TV or nothing, bro. I've never been to New York. I didn't mm -hmm. know this New York. I thought it was L.A. You know, and it was because it was our graffiti artists, but it was like we. So the thing is, we kind of they started New York, East Coast. OK, but like we kind of grew separate, but concurrently, like, you know what I'm saying? Like stuff spawned here that just spawned here, like this graffiti movement we got out here. These dudes grab square cans and start getting it in. We got breakdancers. Some came from New York, but. There was cat, and we do pop locking, so that was our thing. And then the whole locking, the older goofy lock thing, that was cool too. But so I go to the thing. The marquee says 11 p.m. The glove. I said that must be me. And that's how I got. <laughs> and that's how you got your name. So the, they told so me their name because of the big ass gloves. Because of the big, because of the big mitts that you bought in. No, that's an awesome story, and that takes me to my next thing. So as a child and always a young hip hop lover, you know, my young mind was always under the assumption that because of the graffiti and the dancing that breaking was an East Coast based movie. 
And, you know, to my surprise, finding out as a grown man that breaking is based, you know, in the West Coast, obviously in this club that you DJ at, but you're actually in breaking. How did that happen? Or I'm assuming being in this club is how it happened. So I'll explain. This club, Radio, not Radio Tron. I'll explain the two. The club was called Radio. And it was supposed to be that in the movie, but there was a dispute. They got mad. It was some shoe flam, and they just said, my boy was graffiti on the wall. He put Tron in a heart. And they said, that's it. <laughs> so anyway, uh, the whole thing was they, this club would have, it was 13 and over. They didn't sell any alcohol, but you could bring your own. Uh, and it was cool. Nobody was tripping. And so they fostered this environment where you could have Jeffrey Daniels teaching Michael Jackson how to moonwalk in the corner. And you got Sting and Miles Copeland and Madonna's up on stage. And these people are all burgeoning. You know what I'm saying? Michael is still Michael, but he about to be Michael. You know what I mean? It's right before. So I started noticing the people. It's a happening. You know what a happening is, right? You can see it's a lot of people gravitate towards it. The special types of groups. Prince is over there in the cut with some stuff on. I see you. So I'm the DJ, right? So I see these people. So I'm, they come to see me. So I'm like, oh, I'm the star. I'm the DJ of the superstars. Like, they come and see me. I don't have regular people who don't see me. These people are who comes to see me. And Eddie Murphy. and You know what I mean? These people are in the crowd all the time. So uh, producers. So what happened was, as that happening grew, the line grew. And so there was a, a magazine here in L.A. We had the Los Angeles Times, like you guys got the New York Times. We had a section called Calendar back in the 80s and 90s. And the calendar section was the most important piece. It's for over 4 million people look at the calendar every Sunday. And we was the cover story of the calendar, radio, the club, blah, 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 East Coast in L.A. The next week, we had a million people every week at that club all lined up outside, like, Four people deep around the corner. I mean, it was we couldn't put them all in ever. So the producers saw this. They used to come to the club. Uh, Goober Peters or whoever, the, those guys that produced the Golden Globus, they used to come to the club, and they saw the whole thing. So when they went to make the film, they came to the club and pitched it to the owners, and he was like, okay, we want this. And so we had done a documentary called Breaking and Entering. So they uh, contact. We were the only game in town with breakdancing. <laughs> it was nowhere else that that was being done. So they wanted to keep it as realistic as possible because they saw it was a happening, and they let us. They said, "You are the DJ." So I played myself. Ice T was the MC. He played himself. That was a real club. So uh, that was my next question. This is where you meet Ice T at. Is in the same club. So all of this is happening around this same. Spot. Exactly. It's a melting pot artist mecca happening moment. And it's a trip because other people came out of there, directors, uh, uh, writers, actors, it's all kind of people came up out of there. Other clubs spawned from there, big ones, Pro Tools, Power Tools, uh, a lot of big name West Coast clubs came up out of that place. But um, so it was a trip because when I went that night, I swear Ice-T was on the stage. I remember because I was a really, the when I so the way I DJ, I like to DJ intros, break beats, I cut and I scratch. 
but I never had a rapper get and talk over. So I, I would extend the beat. Like I'll play Schoolboy Crush and he would rap. And I was like, oh yeah, this is it. Right. I just keep the beat going. I cut it, drop it out, scratch, give him spots, make it, you know, I'm doing all the stuff you hear in the records, the drops and all that. That's imitating a hip hop DJ at a live show. You know, so, uh, Ice-T, I saw an interview with him and he told me when he came the first time, he saw me DJing. <laughs> so it's one of the things. So it's like, it's, it's like you said, it's that melting pot experience uh, where all the talent is really in the room together. It's just all about which talent is going to get together and kind of like, you know, make their mosh posh of whatever piece of art is going to come to be. I guess your piece of art from this time, the musical contribution would be in the form of the song Reckless and um, the other, what's the other record? Electric Boogaloo. Uh, we had Reckless. I had Tibetan Jam, uh, a bunch of songs, derivatives of Reckless that went into Missing in Action. And during the 80s, we, they were using that. It was the only hip hop thing they had. They told right. So when we made that, that's your next question. No. About Reckless, isn't it? Yes, it is. So <laughs> ask me the question. Well, I want to know, is Reckless your first production job? And how did that production job come to be? Because up to this point, it appears that you're a popular burgeoning DJ who really has no need to make a beat, quite frankly. It doesn't seem like you're needing to make this beat or make this song. So how is this song coming to be? You're you're about the most popular DJ in town. I'm rolling. And it's funny because you, I was about to go to that. That's why I stopped. This Olivia, let you ask the question. So right. when we're filming the scenes, I'm DJing, I'm playing music and they say i hear them um, i had a girlfriend at the time who her, overheard them talking like we got to change all this music for the film we gonna get with africa bambada nah and she came and hit me i was like yo you just did the music for that other movie breaking and entering you need to tell them that you do music for this so i walked right over it's like yo bro africa bambada live in new york this is the la thing it's like gang shit you can't bring him out here to do the music they'll kill him <laughs> you need me to do the music and they was like okay because they just wanted instrumental music for the scenes. So all I, I, I made the music for Reckless for those. Okay. So that became like one scene is Reckless and another one is some other track that I have. But so the music was done. I did the music for the trailer. All this music was being done, right? And at the very 11th hour, they're about to drop this soundtrack and they go, they call me. Man, we need a song with a talker on it. Do you have a, a, a rap talker? That's what they used to call it back then, a talker. So mm -hmm. I said, yeah. I, I could." Uh, so I, I called up Ice-T, had him come up to the studio. I had the track. I said, come on, man, I'm going to pay you to rap on this record they want me to do. And he came and he rapped. If you notice, the credit is Krista Glove Taylor featuring Ice-T. It's my yes. record. So, yes. uh, uh, and, it, and I think that always, I always felt a way about that because I felt like it, 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 some people felt a way about that, let's just say, other than me. Uh, I Absolutely. Heard once that said, uh, I, uh, he, I know I'm not going to do that. So, um, yeah. I'm Look, I mean, the way the record is framed, in the, if you look at the timeline on it, well, it looks like you put Ice-T on. I mean, that's the biggest record he's ever had. Well, that's, I mean, I didn't want to say it like that, but, you know, didn't that record move like three, four million units? Correct me if I'm wrong. Oh, yeah. So yeah, you're triple, quadruple platinum, like out the gate in what, 1983, 84? This one right here. Yep. 
It's up on the wall. Hey, matter of fact, when they came at us, we was like, where's our gold record? It was like, here's this. It, what's that? That's not go give me two gold records. I don't want no platinum record. <laughs> we'd have to get eight of those. I said, okay, just give me what you got. And then, so we was, we, it was 1984, we got these plaques. I didn't even know of any other group then. <laughs> right. Like, Egyptian Lover was in the clubs with us. He didn't have no record selling millions in a movie. Like, them dudes, it's like people overlooked me or something. Like, not only was I in that movie, but I was in the Shaka Khan I Feel For You video, number one song at the same time. And what they did was they took a normal Kamali fashion video we did. It was me, Shaka Dude, the whole breaking thing, right? Only thing is they wanted to cross over, something that would connect because Shaka didn't want to be, she shoot by herself. She was like, uh, so they said, well, how about we get the DJ with you? And it looks like you're with them in the thing. Wow. So it's me and Shaka by ourselves for 12 hours shooting this video. And I was sprung on her already before I remember. She only two feet tall. That I mean, on the... <laughs> it's Shaka. Oh, it's prime man. Shaka too. It's prime yes. Shaka. Yeah, yeah. I, no. I like Nicki Minaj. Look like Shaka. <laughs> no, say less. Trust me, say less. We understand. So, we understand. Yes. Yes. So yeah, so I had that going, and it, but yet, so you know what I'm saying? Being the DJ and being the MC are just two different worlds, bro. They DJ producer. I got all this going, money, all of it, but they want the guy who got the microphone. <laughs> right. I guess because he could say their name. Because that's what he did for me. Hmm. Okay, so where where would you say your um official like DJ to producer or musician transition took place? Because I know that you were um I mean obviously you're you're notably known for your contributions to a lot of Dr. Dre's work and for being with him for a duration of some years, and we're going to get to that shortly. But there was a time before you met with Dre and after breaking and can you tell me what that time was like for you and what you were into oh yeah okay so after breaking around so shaka khan in the video right a friend of mine low silas jr was an executive at at uh, uh mca records and he signed bobby brown so okay. he wanted some ice to be scratching and, and learning uh, about just the business being with lou i beat on records Quincy Jones had me, I worked with him when he had his Quest project. I was in there doing turntablism on a Patty Austin record. Uh, that's where I met Bruce Wadeen and was, it's actually a funny story because me and Q sat most of the day. Wait, it was the first time someone had tried to sync two digital machines together, this guy. So he's doing that and the machines, they don't sync up. Like, so the engineer getting paid by the hour, right? So click, 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 click. You feeling me? Like, yep. he's like, man, I'm just killing the money, man. Stop it. And make <laughs> right. That was the moment, you know. So these were Sony machines. It was, these were the prototypes. So I was in there with him doing that. Like you said, I did some scratching with Weird Al Yankovic, and um, oh wow, I was. Um, so, you, so you literally watch stuff go digital. Yeah, those were the first yeah, like you watched it go from analog to digital. Yeah. Oh yeah, we kind of made that happen. So check this out. I was in an alpha tester group for Pro Tools. It went from sound tools to Pro Tools for the movie Space Jam. That's what Pro wow. Tools was for. Most people don't know that. They think that it was just some shit that was made for DJs, I mean, for producers to be hot. No. Right. Most of it was made for, to serve a 
they need a function. We need to put music and the visual together so we can make it. What can we do? We need to digitally take this because it was, yes, we were part of that digital. DAT players. Yeah. I watched, yeah, uh, CD burners in the studio before yep. that. So, like, look, I was talking about sampling. So, the way that, for instance, on the Shaka Khan, Shaka, 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 Shaka Khan, Shaka mm -hmm. Khan, Shaka Khan, everybody would imagine that was a sampler because that's what they do today. No. But that was an MXR digital delay. It would capture the voice exactly how you put it in. Right. So, we, and it had a little white button on it. And so he's like, shock, 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 shock. Just hit the shock, button shock. over and over. Yeah, yes. you had to do that manually. That, so that's a manual and, job. Right. Yeah. And you got to edit it so it fits on beat. Like if you miss one, you cut the tape to make it be right. Or add You got to be crafty. To right. I'm about that. to say, you either have to cut tape or add tape. Correct? Correct. And so they, people are made. We used to do, that's why we, like I just realized today when I was playing my show, you know, when you hear music drag, like, Burr. Mm -hmm. Me and the Egyptian look started that. That turned. I hate when phone calls come in, bro. No, 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 you're fine. It's all good. Okay, so that turntable drink, that stop, that's me yeah. and the Egyptian lover. We started wow. that over here. And yeah. we play records backwards by hand. So we would drag, stop, back it up, run it backwards. You know, it was crazy what we could do with turntables. And so then I would say that my transformation from, I wasn't really, I, I did a lot of that DJing while these guys was trying to make records to be famous and stuff, right? I already had a record. I had done that. I was on to some other stuff. Um, I was trying to get back into movies. I, I really wanted to only make music for movies but uh, or do an R&B group because I felt like I could sing a little bit. Not a lot of bit, but enough to get me a bad chick and rich. <laughs> That's what I wanted to do. I had a plan, right? I couldn't do this. Right. So I was going to get mine off of this other thing. R&B get real pretty girls. So I used to tell Ice and them, they want me to be doing on these tours. No, I mean, no, nah, man, I'm, I'm not doing that rap shit, bro. That's... That's not it. Them chicks was ugly. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, but but you're growing up in a different world where it's like, well, you're not chilling in Compton. Like you're seeing Madonna and probably like Cindy Lauper and 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 you know, like a young Janet Jackson and and all these other and all these other women. So it's like your expectation and your stratosphere and your way of thinking is probably totally different to your rom counterparts at the time. Absolutely, bro. I was uh like, I DJed a party for um, that aforementioned Miles Copeland. He, man, okay, so there's IRS Records, The Police, and it was... Uh, um, Sting's group is The FBI Police, FBI right? Management. He yeah. had all the police monikers. That was Sting's... Uh, Andy Co Stuart Copeland is the drummer of The Police. Miles is his brother. He managed okay. all of them. So Miles, he used to manage this group called The Animals back in the... 50s, you know, the animals, the rock group. So they came back, I think, and Oingo Boingo. So they had a comeback party at his mansion. So I DJed this party, right? So I got the people you just mentioned, funny, you say Sandy Lauper. You got, I mean, this 1983, 84, it's probably the, I think uh, War Games had come out or was about to come out. That dude's in there. Uh, you know what I mean? It's just, bruh. 
Yeah, I grew up. So I keep telling people, they like, oh, man, I see. I heard a rip. Now, this I did here. Uh, a guy did an interview with Ice, and Ice said, man, we want to get Glove. Glove said he quit. He got a check, and he left. I was like, bro, I can tend to tell you this. I was in Ladera Heights, bro. I ain't never been poor. Like, I'm not the rapper that was poor and had tried to make it. You know what I'm saying? It was like right. I did that because my parents, any, so I grew up, any business idea I had, they was on it. Whatever it was, they support you. See, so I, I grew up with them parents. So, yeah, and I was trying to get money, but it wasn't because I was broke. I wanted to get my own money, so I don't have that same story. Now, I did run away from home and sleep in my car and all that BS, but it was all on me. It wasn't because I couldn't have came back to the La Cienega and been home. <laughs> no, so. and, and I like the honesty. I think too often in this culture, we have this uh, thing about, well, if it's not from the street, it's not authentic. It's like, no, the black experience is real no matter where you come from. And quite frankly, I used to live out in Cali Glove. It's like, you know, I have been a couple of blocks up from like Ladera Heights and all that. It ain't necessarily all the way sweet over there either. It may not be hey, confident. Hey, Right. It's not Compton, but I mean, very few places in America is Compton. And I've been around this country. So. So the cool thing was like, oh, my neighbors are doctors and lawyers, black, that both parents, you know what I'm saying? They you know what it is over here. But now I'm on this side as well. I'm not in the rich side. I'm on the other side. I'm on the south. You know how I go. You got a border. It's a working class side. That's the working class side. That's not the rich side. That's the working class side. And yeah, that's familiar. how I came up. But we, but they wouldn't let me. Like, I got a credit card when I was 16. You know what I'm saying? Uh, my brother went to Beverly Hills High School. You know, my sister went to Samo, Santa Monica High. You know what I'm saying? It's that. So I grew yeah. up different from most of the stories. But I'm still got, I, I'm on 64th Street. I say again. <laughs> right. No, no, no. From these 60 streets that you may have heard of. Yeah, no, no, no. I'm, I'm familiar with the area and the territory. Like I said, like, that ain't no... How about this? Like, as an out-of-towner and somebody that's from Atlanta that lived there, it's like, well, that ain't that still ain't nowhere where I could just pull up on out-of-state tags and be like, you know, what up? Like, it's sweet. Yeah. Right. Hey, I stayed in Buckhead last month mm-hmm. in October, and I found out that it ain't sweet over there either. <laughs> I mean, every major city that has metropolitan area is going to have pockets and corners where it's like, uh... I'm better off navigating somewhere else because it's not my corner. Exactly, so, man. So, yeah, that's what got me. But this whole Crenshaw Sloss in my neighborhood, the whole thing, that that what you heard on them records was I was here. And so that's what drew them kind of. They met people, too, that was over there. But I'm right here. They could be. I'm like the pivotal point of that. But that's another story. So we were into, uh, yeah, I was into the R&B movement and trying to get that going. And uh I was DJing at the biggest clubs in LA, the private ones and the really big ones. I DJ like, it's like the tunnel paradise 24. I did that for six years. I'm the closer. So like all the artists come through there and I'm still a DJ, bro. I'm not trying to be an artist. I'm helping blow up right. artists. Right. I'm not trying to even produce them. Cause I'm a DJ. Yeah. <laughs> like you don't need to produce them. Right. That's a producer. I'm a DJ. I make money DJ and I get in movies DJ and I can get in videos. I can do everything they can do as a DJ. So I'm not trying to be all that other stuff at the time. And then uh, that's when I meet Dr. Dre. Okay. Now, what year is this that you're meeting Dre? Or are you all familiar with him? Is this pre-NWA? And like, you know, what is the music scene like? Because they obviously altered the landscape of hip hop 
with their first album. So I imagine it altered the landscape of Los Angeles first. Yeah, we were split in two on that. So I was DJing at Paradise, which is an upscale black club. You got to dress up and all that. So one of the things they tell me, I can play rap whatever I want. I can play bitch better have my money quick. But NWA, we're not no. having that. We don't want to hear none of that. And and certain other gang music, like, you know what I mean? Like, mm -hmm. nah. So it's cool, whatever. No problem. So uh, the climate was, the, you got the K-Day and the kids that's into this. It was dope, man. Grab a stupid chick by a basket weed, right? And then it was that. That blew up. And they had the first NWA album. And the second NWA came out right after I met Dre. I met Dre in 1989. So the, those guys used to try to come to the club I DJ that, but they wore baseball caps. Remember, I told you it's upscale, no caps. Well, they in NWA, they got to wear their caps, so they're not coming in. So one of the things that I did outside of all the other stuff is put that dude in a position to be able to get in that club where all the fine chicks was at. Like, come on, man, you can wear your hat. Come on, y'all. I'll get you in. And so I got NWA with me. And they're like, okay. And they can come in with their hats. And they can be what they, you know, what they are. Because they're celebrities. That's part of their uniform. Let them have a hat. But it took me to be able to. So now that I'm hanging with Dre, it's come with me. And, and they know I'm the celebrity, bro, at the club. And he's not. He's a rapper. And that's how they looked at it. Like, Glove, you know, we just doing this for you. But, you know, let the story be told in a movie. And it's something else. Right. Uh, well, I mean, well, that's funny. This is 1989. Dr. Dre is not Dr. Dre yet in 1989, even after Straight Outta Compton. Well, but this is what he was, though. He actually, when I met Dre, he pulled up to my house. My boy Dave Dakia brought him over to my house, and he pulled up in a convertible vet playing No More Lies. It was number one <laughs> already. It was platinum. He had already did J.J. Fad. He had a two platinum records with Dre, Mr. Platinum. He actually okay. had caught up with me because he had the Easy e album, the, the NWA album, the JJ Fat album, and Michelet. They was all platinum, and I sold four million on my first one, so it took him four records to catch me. So now, I guess he told me a story, too, that I did not know. He said, man, in 1984, I came and watched you DJ. I came to see you DJ. And I was like, he told me this about a year ago. I didn't know this the whole time I was working with him, bro. <laughs> so, so he's like, always... You, you, you scouted me out. Yeah, I'm about to say, well, he's always, um, you know, Mike and I talk on the show that he, um, his eye for talent is uh, one of his monikers. And so you wow. appear to be the first person he scouted out. Bro, what you just said, you just changed my whole perspective of my life. <laughs> I mean, I mean, I, I, I have some notes and I, I'll tell you what. My, my, my thoughts are about you right quick, and then we can kind of go to the next phase, like like with Dre. And, and this kind of concerns him. You know, he is often looked at in hip-hop regards as our Quincy Jones. Well, you know, Quincy Jones played with, like, uh, a lot of great bands and, like, a lot of great band leaders. But it's like, well, you would be, if he's Quincy, well, you're his greatest band leader. And I, I think the first one to help him really kick the band off actually because you've actually stayed the duration like i don't think there's anybody else that's involved with the chronic and doggy style 
on the production side that's involved with 2001 and involved with Exhibits album and involved with the Firm album and involved with the Aftermath album. So you've obviously been an integral part of, of his success. And this is 1989 where y'all are meeting. So my next question is that a lot of us who heard this rapper by the name of the DOC felt like if it not been for a tragic accident, could have been one of the greatest rappers of all time. A lot of us still feel that way. Um, tell me a little bit about what you know about the DOC, what his contributions are, and, and, and what things are like around this time for him. Because you're meeting him around 1989, so this is no one can do it better time, too. Yeah, man. You know, funny you said that about Quincy. A buddy might call me one night. He said, man, you know what, bro? He said, you're Dre's Rod Temperton. I was thinking in a lot of ways, you're his Sinatra. You just don't sing. Wow. I didn't even look at it like that. But he said, yeah, right. Yeah. Off the wall himself. Well, well people <laughs> people forget that Quincy's first shit, like, that really blew him up is with Frank, though. Whoa, you ain't lying. Damn. Right. So I see what you're doing. Your correlation is from the top. It's like, yeah, you know, where you where there, Frank Sinatra, you got them off. I like that. So, right. Um, well, I mean, but that's also the origins so of where his legend is built. I'm sorry. Go ahead. No, no, you speak, speak. I want to hear it. That's exactly how my stage show is, bro. I keep telling people I want to be Frank Sinatra. I want to sit on a stool, talk to him, tell jokes, sing some songs, play some music. I'm Frank Sinatra. And you said that. That's really intriguing how God has a timeline that we can't understand. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like, he put all these things together at once, and now they came out to us at different times. Right. The most high doesn't do coincidences, Glove. No. Right. Man, so I appreciate that. Yeah, so at this time, um, uh, in 89, yeah, so this is what I, I did. When I got with Dre, I'm musical, right? So we started sampling. He likes to sample. We get stuff going and sample. But I was like, bro, if we, we did this thing on um, Boys in the Hood, uh, where we took the Bobby Womack thing. So uh, when we did that, I said, bro, why don't we just get Bobby Womack to play the guitar and then play a part like that, and we pay him. We don't got to pay for a sample. We can just pay this nigga five, ten grand, put him as a writer or something. Like, yo, bro, and if you want to, like this part, I said, look, I was working at a studio called Fire Station. My boy Jeff, uh, he had this spot right over on Robertson, right? So Dre used to come over there all the time. I was like, bro, I got a mini Moog, an Art Odyssey, a Fender Rose in the attic. Because we wasn't using none of that stuff. We was on the new stuff. I right. was like, bro. I remember it was about sampling and getting this sample, sample time. And blah, 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 blah. This is now the Akai. You got the SP-1200, the SP-12. You got the wow. Lindrum. All these things are happening. And I'm like, yo, we need to switch. And I mean, we had these talks, bro. I mean, he was with it. It wasn't like, I, I'm sure, normally when someone tells you something, that's an idea you already had. You see what I mean? So I'm not Just confirmation. To yeah, well, so the way life is, imagine if everybody in your life right now, including me, everybody in your universe is you pushed out of your body to tell you shit that you need to know. Like a nigga come up to you with a gun. Hey, man. That's something inside your head that you need to, like, you know, you get out of it or whatever, but it's really a representation of a situation. 
outwardly. That's what all these manifestations are. They're not, and I don't like that word manifest, but all of these are manifestations. They come from that. So if everybody's you pushed out, then you had the idea. I'm just telling you because you need to be reminded of but you need, oh yeah. So I don't take credit, but it was, we were talking and I was like, we need to do this. So we started doing that. Just iron sharpens me. iron. Iron sharpens yeah. iron. Yeah. Yeah. You're pushing the envelope. And I'm not You're afraid talking. to test that dude. Everybody else is, you know, I'm over there. Like, I like the whittle. Like, I'll be like, hey, Drake. So what you think it is? Right. <laughs> that right. other cat's right. like, yeah, yeah, yeah. I'll be over there like, <laughs> so let me ask you something. I'm gonna I'm gonna name a couple of records out, and you tell me uh, if you had any contributions with these records. Deep Cover and Natural Born Killers. Deep Cover. Oh wow. So yeah, um, Dre, Colin, and I were at uh, we were at Paramount recording. That's where we did Deep Cover. Now I don't. I'm in the room, so I was telling my boy. Sometimes it's a guy that's in the room. He sits there and he says stuff. And that's what yeah. makes him hot. He ain't producing. He ain't touching nothing. And you look at him and he's going, you change it. And then he go, that's it. You know what I mean? So I was more on that line in there. I was producing, but like of that. So Creative like, license this, producers. Right. So Colin's like, we need to use a stand-up bass to play this sound. With the sound we're trying to play. Replay. And he's playing it. And I'm like, it's not a stand-up. He was like, it's a Clevenger. He's like, yeah, but it's a Clevenger Jr. Colin was like, yeah, I need the one that I can play fretless. So we walked across the alley to Nadine's Music, bought a Clevenger, came back, Clevenger Jr.'s fretless bass sound, just like a stand-up. Dude, that's not a sample. That's Colin Wolf playing that. He's but playing that. I said, get this. Like, it's a team. And Dre was like, yeah, break. He threw the quarterback. He threw the credit card. You know what I'm saying? We go get the touchdown. Like, it ain't no... People got it all wrong, man. Ain't not one person does shit by themselves. No prince, no none of them. It's always got... Look, bro, when you have an experiment and it's just you, and then another person puts their eyeballs on it, the experiment is different. That is a known fact. We influence everything around us with some kind of energy field that we have. You know what I'm saying? I might make you feel a little more or less nervous because I'm standing there where you were a little more or less nervous when you did it by yourself. You see what I mean? Either yeah. way, it alters the thing. So that's the part. But yeah, so that was Deep Cover. And then I mixed with Dre. So I always mix. So, and then there was Natural Born Killers. So Natural Born Killers is another song that stemmed from an event. Sam Sneed did that beat. Can I just killers. can I just say something right quick for for a yeah. lot of us like natural born killers is like something a, a big like what could have been type of record because it's epic it's like natural born killers the song is a movie for us by itself yeah no 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 the song is a movie it's epic Absolutely. it's some it's it's some of their best stuff and their legends and like you know like yeah so please and yeah that, please I bold. agree with you on that and that one was done. It was a collaborative effort with Sam Sneed and Dre and, you know, all of that. But um, the, I wasn't in the room for that song, but I'm going to tell you what happened. We were at my house. Dominoes, whatever, smoking weed, playing dominoes. I live near the studio, so we just be chilling over there. Jimmy Iovine calls. Dre go, come on, Glove, let's roll. So I hop in the car with Dre. We roll over to meet Jimmy Iovine at his office. 
Jimmy says, come on, Dre, I want to take you to meet uh, Trent Reznor. So we go, we drive behind uh, Jimmy, rolling up here to meet Trent Reznor. So we no, that's go. From, that's, that's, that's the guy from um, the rock band, Nine right? Yeah, he's, he's a, that's a rocker. Okay. Nine Nails, yeah. Trent right. Reznor is Nails. So we go up here, and he's Nine Inch Nails. You know, we're us and he's him. We're going to meet us another. So Jimmy liked to put weird groups together to make shit happen. Like he introduced us to Bono. Dre didn't want to do this thing with you too, but I was like, let's do that. So anyway, we go up here. And so Trent Reznor got a studio in a house up here at the top of Beverly Hills. This house that he got the studio in is the house where the Manson murders happened. You know Charles Manson? Yes, unfortunately. Okay, so he, he, they killed six or seven people in this house. So this, this yeah, yeah, he's in the house, the Manson murder house. He rented out, and he's in the living room, right? So now, mind you, I'm one of those LA dudes. You, I know the lore of LA. Like I'm like, dude, this Cielo Drive, this that house, yo. So I'm standing by the kitchen door, and they talking, you know, the, the dude, they all talking something. I'm over here. I said, is this where they wrote Pig in Blood? Trip Reznor was like, oh, man, you know what house this is? And he just stopped talking and just took us on a tour, showed us where all the bodies were, where all of the stuff happened, and all of it told the story, right? So we go home, and we watch the Charles Manson uh, documentary. And that's where... Uh, Natural Born Killers came. Oh, it was another song that we did. It was, it was uh, Dre, and DLC. What was that album gonna be called? Well, it was actually Helter Skelter. Helter That's Skelter. Helter Skelter. The name yes. Helter Skelter. And from Helter Skelter, that was Dre's album gonna be called, right? Yeah. But Doc went and made an album called Helter Skelter. You know, to, to but anyway, Natural Born Killers were made for Helter Skelter, not for the movie. <laughs> Wow. So how did it end up on the Murder Was the Case soundtrack? It was just like... Natural Born Killers wasn't on the Murder Was the Case soundtrack. Was it? No, no, no. You're right. It wasn't. That's my fault. Yeah. Um, I was like, bro, I'm, I'm, I'm in another... I'm in a Mandela effect, if that's true. <laughs> Murder Was the Case, because I could tell you where I was living, because that was like at a park around the corner from my apartment. Like, a lot of... So... I got this thing I tell people, like, there's a lot of pictures that are famous that you see of Dre and Snoop standing there, and I'm actually standing next to them, but I'm cut out of the picture. Like, a lot of <laughs> Really? I was, and one picture I see, he got on my, I stepped to the side and gave him my vest to wear, and it's now a popular vest with a Carhartt hat and a tan vest. That's my vest. Yeah, in the back after he took the picture. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, that's, that's, um, <clears throat> that's the music business, you know? That's how the music business rolls. That's kind of why we have you here today is because you've kind of been cut out the picture, even though you've always uh, been there. So how did um, how did the chronic come to be? Because you're obviously around when the split is going on with N.W.A. Because I believe you had your, your R&B group had a contract with Ruthless, right? Yes. <laughs> and so my boy, that I told you, Dave, that introduced me to Dre. He used yeah. to tell Dre, dude. They ripping you off because his dad was a businessman. My dad worked at Bethlehem Steel. I ain't no shit about no business. So right. he's telling, man, look, this is this. this. So wait, Dre, you telling me that Jerry Heller is your manager. His brother got you your car and his cousin sold you the house. 
The, all the handlers got the money, Brody, and easy with them. Ah, oh, so then, so what happened was, my group, Paul Broken Lonely, had a deal with Ruthless, and the amount of money was stated was, this is how much we got, and you get half. So then I had my contract, right? So the amount was X. And I said, hey, Dre, I just want to show you my contract. It's how much you, they got for us. <laughs> and it was 750000 for three albums, and they had told him it was 150000 or something like that. And so that was like, So that day that I showed him that was the same day that Michelet was performing something in my heart on the Arsenio Hall show. <laughs> so we rolled from my house to the Arsenio Hall show. So it's like me, Dre, Easy, Mike Lynn, Ruben. It's my group, Pope Broken Only, and, and, and the label is taking us to see the show. So we get to sit with NWA. So it's funny because they got a graphic of NWA, and they show me and Mike Lynn and Dr. Dre. It's like, we not in NWA. <laughs> It's right. that was easy and and uh, ran in them, but we was kind of intermingled. So I'm sitting, <laughs> I'm sitting here, Dre sitting here, Easy sitting there, and Dre's like, after this, I gotta look up for me. They actually, that's what kind of happened right at the Arsenio. He's like, "Fuck this, you know, you lie, blah blah blah." Boom. So at the show. Pretty much, but they didn't argue. But that's when he was telling him, like, yo, like that was the next moment. He had just seen the contract. So he was like, hey, nigga. <laughs> For that other eight, 125000 I'm supposed to get. This is like, this dude, hey, quick story. One time, around the same time, actually before the murder case, me and Dre are out at the, my boy's uh, house. And it's kind of cool. We all about to pull out this time of year or something. So my boy Colin again, he go to get a jacket. Drake, I got a jacket in the trunk. Colin grabbed the jacket, put the jacket on. It's cold. Colin put his hand in the pocket. Boom. Hey, Trey. He said, hey, Trey. It's a check. Trey said, give me that. $80,000, right? I've been looking for that. Colin put his hand in the right hand pocket. $120,000 check. <laughs> He's like, give me that. I guess he had got these checks, put them in his pocket in the jacket, and put it in the trunk for like a month. It was like a month old or something. It was hilarious. Wow. Uh, uh, 500 convertible the next day. <laughs> <laughs> I bet. So after the break-off, I mean, so how does the chronic come to be? Because, you know, stylistically in about a year, year and a half time, the sounds and, and what he's using on Niggas for Life and even No One Can Do It Better, the sounds on The Chronic are totally different. So, I mean, you're there for that transformation and that transformation transformed hip-hop. So tell me where the whole G-Funk and all of that is just coming from with the change. Because it went from, it went from like, for us, like watching it from the outside within, it's like what Dre is doing production-wise early on with NWA is like public enemy West. You know? Exactly. And... And so stylistically, the chronic is such a departure from that. And so how did that yeah, departure take no place? No more the noise. What was that called? They called the Bring noise. the noise. Welcome to the Terror yeah, Dome. Like, yeah, Dre was making records. Bomb what? Squad. You're talking about the... What they call them? They had a name. The Bomb Squad. What, the... Bomb, Bomb Squad. squad. 
Yeah, about to say Mike Dean's in the cut. Yeah, bomb squad. Yeah, they had noise. That was their whole thing. Noise. Yeah, bring the noise. They didn't have to be melodic. That's a theory. So make it just abstract. They were trying to make that that rock. So rock music makes you vibrate a certain way, and mm -hmm. hip hop makes you vibrate a certain way. Mm -hmm. You know what I'm saying? So they were trying to get that vibration from the rock. That's why it's like you. They are rock band, bro. Mm -hmm. I've never thought of it that way. Listen to them, man. They got the flavor flavors. That's a rock band, bro. Look at them. They was all white dudes with guitars and shit. You'd be like, they bad. No, that's fascinating that's perspective. A, and and no. Chuck D is the front man. He's not a rapper. He's a front man. He, he's an awesome front man. He got bars. So he, he got, got bars. Okay. He probably doesn't consider himself a rapper. He's more of an orator. I mean, he, he's some of everything. I mean, I think definitely you hear his influence. I mean, you hear his influence in some of your greatest West Coast MCs, Tupac and Ice Cube. You oh, hear so him in them. Yeah. All day. All so, of them. Yeah. No, to a degree. Definitely. Yeah. Some Chuck D. He'll throw that shit in, but Snoop got that draw. But yeah, man, so the the thing that happened was just a conversion of, you know, I'm going to tell you what I think, too, to be honest with you. So after we linked up with Snoop, like, we was working on music already, but Snoop was right there at the beginning. And then the weed came in the room. Like, it was always weed in the room. I wasn't smoking. Dre wasn't smoking, but it was just there. And I think that just made us, we love Parliament, and maybe we was just listening to Dude, I don't even... First was G-Thang was the... After Deep Cover was G-Thang. And wow. G-Thang, I wasn't there for that one either. <laughs> Hold but, on. So the first two records that they made together were Deep Cover and nothing but a G-Thang? Um, and we had another one that ended up being... Uh, uh, what was that other song? But anyway, yeah, that was pretty much... Cause remember we so we did that. So you guys gotta know we make a song every day, maybe two. And so we got like 20 songs and then deep cover comes. You know what I'm saying? Like right. and then like that verse from that thing, you know, whatever they do, I don't know. But when the right beat pop, then it's on. And that's the same beat, like that deep cover got the same break that I used in uh Stranded on Death Row. It's the same breakbeat. It's just faster. Well, that was my next. Well, I was going to ask you about your contributions to the Chronic, because everybody knows it's Stranded on Death Row. So how did that come to be for you? But you kind of just you know, explained. Yeah, I'm in the studio with Dre every day, and we work in, you know, whatever I'm doing. I don't know if it's playing a keyboard, doing something, playing the bass, whatever it is, mixing, engineering thing, and. uh He's like, man, I want you to get a track on this album. And I'm like, okay. He's like, I want you to do this. He said, I want you to sample this, take this, and put this on it. I said, okay. So I went to the house. I made the beat. I put the loop. I did the thing. And I put it all together. But, I, you know, I got a way of doing it. Like, he said what he wanted, but he didn't expect me to come back with that shit. <laughs> right. Because he didn't change it. Like, he would get stuff, and it would we change it. You know, even records. We we this Dre Day is Aqua Boogie and uh like uh, it's Aqua Boogie. Dre Day is Aqua Boogie. But it's like 
two versions, the original and the remix. It's two different bass lines. So we did that. We did the original Def, uh, Dre Day, um, which I didn't play on, and then the remix, which I played on, and I did the bass line with the bubble, 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 bubble. When we went to the uh, second half of the remix of Aqua Boogie. See, so it changes in the middle. And the bass line changed two songs, Aqua Boogie. So if you go listen to Aqua Boogie, you'll hear both Dre Days. <laughs> wow. So we just started using in Parliament and some of them other ones, Day the Niggas Took Over, uh, Rat Tat Tat. You know, I'm in there, but they were like fully formed. You know, I'm mixing and hearing them and, you know, those songs. But did you know yeah, what you all were making? Like, like, so when you're sitting up here and you're mixing these tracks and you're seeing Daz and Corrupt and Warren G and Snoop, of course, are, 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 is everybody feeling what's going on? Michael Jackson used to have this thing where, like, somebody asked him, it's like, hey, did you know you were making Off the Wall and Thriller? And he was like, yeah. <laughs> like, I knew I was making that shit. Like, that's what's up. Like, did you know yeah, that? Like when you so when you're in there, did everybody like kind of know what was going on? And everybody's like, we got next. Like this is this is going on. When, when we made the chronic, that record was the first record. That song was the first one we did straight on Death Row to Hell. Anybody other than Snoop. Like you had Rage, Corrupt, RBX. Yes. So Snoop, Courage, Corrupt, RBX, and Bushwick Bill. But if you listen to the rest of that album, it ain't nobody, they ain't no Daz and Corrupt on that album. Not on the Chronic. Like, you know, Snoop. It's Dre and Snoop. But right. you got, uh, what's the song we got? Bitches Ain't Shit, I think. I got, uh, no, something about, but you don't hear, do you hear them on Snoop's album, Doggy Style? You hear those guys. So that was the second part. That question you asked applies to that one. When we did the first one, it was me, Dre, it was all the musicians, and then one really rapper. Yeah, we knew we was making that. We we knew we don't listen to the radio. We make the music for the radio. So it's no point in listening to it because we, we make the music. It's like, you know what I mean? Like, so no. we don't do that. And I'm a DJ. We're DJ. So we know music. When we hear it, I'm a I'm a very successful DJ. You know what that? So the part about back up to the DJ. So part of my thing I didn't tell you was when I first started DJing, I became what's called a billboard reporter. So a billboard reporter, there was only two in every city in 50 cities in the United States. And L.A., New York, and Chicago was the hottest spots. So what I had to do was give my top 20 without playing in the club every week. When the record companies get to the list of who's a billboard reporter, so this is, like you said, I was a DJ, bro. I had so many records. I had to call the record companies and tell them to only call me on Wednesday between 9 and 12. That's it. My mama told me, she said, you tell them to call you at a time because they keep calling my phone. <laughs> you know, you had a landline, right? My mama, right? Yeah. I'm 20. So I had to tell them that. So the record companies, they said, okay. And then I had to tip. Dude, every Christmas I had to tip the damn delivery people because they came to my house every day with records. I had to give them 50 bucks. I was like, Mom, I got to give them 50 bucks for Christmas? Yeah, they come here every day. I'm tipping DHL, uh, uh, FedEx, UPS, and it was another one. I'm, I'm 200 short every because of this. But the Billboard Reporter is what established me as one of the hottest DJs around. So I had to, I'm a, 
I break records. That's what I'm known for. I can listen to a stack of records and say this one, bang, and the crowd go. And so, <laughs> do you mind if we sidebar and segue right quick? What you just said is what's wrong with radio. DJs are sitting up here looking to stuff their pockets instead of breaking records. Real DJs break records. Break records, bro. That's your job as a DJ is to break the record. You, you're supposed to have the ear before everybody else has the ear. You tell us what's hot. You make the motion happen. Bro, I take it another step. I'm going to be playing it, and they're going to be wondering what it is. Right. That's how it's supposed to be. What is that? What did he just cut off? Right. What the fuck is that? That doesn't exist anymore. White labels. I never marked anything off on my shit, but it was white label, test pressing. You know what I'm saying? I write the name Cameo. I don't know what song. Wow. I just want to be test pressing. You know what I'm saying? Like, man, I'm a DJ, bro. They can't see me. None of them. I'm going to have a DJ show. It's a contest. It's going to have four phases. But the final phase, now you're going to have your battle, your guys going, whatever. But the final phase is going to be a dance floor with 100 people on it. And if anybody walks each person to the point, when you lose a person, you lose a point. And if you go below 50, you can lose the competition if you win all the other three segments. Like, and I'm going to add a, a funny part where the promoter comes and sweats you. Like, bro, these dudes be in these DJ competitions like it's fucking sweet. Like, yeah, man, I'm DJ. Yeah. Light it up. Dude, if it ain't nobody dancing, you got to make them stop dancing. Dude. We need to show some drinks. Remember those? That's the promoter. Yeah. The promoter got to promoter. In. What if the promoter telling you the numbers looking low? We gonna cut 200, 300, 400, 500 out your cut because it's looking oh, light up in here tonight. Yeah, that, I know all about that it. That pressure needs to be applied to these DJs while they playing records, so we can see who's good. Ain't no pressure, right? Man, that, that, that was insightful. No. Yeah. See that. No, the thank thing. you for sharing that. Yeah, bro. So yeah, but back to the other thing. Yeah. So. Um, that was kind of the move in the chronic room. We were like, you know, feeling like we got the dopest rappers. <laughs> right. We got a you got, album. Well, you got Snoop in the room, and he's so yeah, Dre and Snoop. Now I got I two mean, monsters. So I've 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 gone on according to Hip Hop Live a whole lot, the glove, and I've said that Snoop is rap's first real superstar. What is your take on my take? So. To me, a superstar is a person. So, number one, I'm going to give an example. Right now, who's the biggest rap superstar? It's probably Drake. Outside of Drake. Eminem. No, no, no. Not by sales. Like, right now. Who you hear and see in the news? Who's doing shit right now? Who's the star? Who you see doing everything? Who just did the Super Bowl a couple years ago? Like Eminem, what was he in the Super Bowl? Did he show up? Yeah. Okay. Everybody showed so up. The whole gang showed up. Who did you know? Dre and Snoop. Snoop. Yeah, you right, bro. Snoop. It's still it's Snoop. Still a, the biggest superstar in rap. He's still it since he came. Snoop got 70 million Instagram followers, bro. 70. Dre got six. <laughs> <laughs> he's a star. He's our he's the first person 
that I ever saw as a, as a young man, as a teenager, that it's like instantaneously. No, everybody wanted to be like Snoop, talk like Snoop, act like Snoop, dress like Snoop. He had white boys in Charlotte, North Carolina, wearing flannel when I was in seventh grade. I watched that shit happen. I, I, I saw that a few times. I saw that with Curtis Blow. I saw everybody wanted to be Curtis Blow. Everybody wanted to wear the gold chain. Everybody wanted to be that. And the rappers were emulating it. See what I mean? You can yeah. see it in the game. They all want to be Kurt Blow. Then they want to be Ice-T, a gangster. You got Mob Deep. All them dudes want to be us, bro. They just, they got, I mean, not us, but they got their own streets. They just want to be able to tell the story like we was the first to say it like that. You know, and so that gave everybody else power to say, fuck it. You know, it could be original Queen Bridge murderers now because them niggas said, fuck the police and we kill, we kill a hooker. And Ooh. all this. Right. Now, you were freed up to do that. I mean, you know, Nas wasn't rapping about that. You know, but they got, they got them. They got killers too. They got Nas, he's artists. You got your killers. You got your gang, you know what I mean? You got Dipset, they're a gang, you know what I mean? You got the whole Bronx as a gang. <laughs> no, no, no. One of our um, you know, I um I have some connection to some of Bad Boys old people, and um a lot of them are from the Bronx, and I got some family and friends that is from that way. They're their own, they're their own tribe. Wow, you are not lying, and I hate they're that. their own tribe. Like Bronx cats yeah. is different. Yeah. Yeah, like yeah, they do. It's funny too, cause I love it, man. I was at Babito's barbershop once with uh Fat Joe and I was at the far side. Diamond D took me over there and we were just chilling, talking and shit. But it's just cool to be Diamond able to some places. You know? This is what I'm talking about. Like you don't hear stuff like that anymore. It's like, yeah, Diamond D took me to this spot and Fat Joe was there. <laughs> yeah, we were there too. It was funny because I always thought that, you know, these cats, they, you know, some of them do what they say they do. And I just say that. All right. Like, right, 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 right. I mean, hey, Glove, I'm going to be honest with you. Hey, can you tell me what your schedule looks like? Because I have so much more I want to ask you. And I think we may need to, like, put this out in parts because you've just, you know, you've been such a wealth of information and knowledge. And, like, I mean, quite frankly, on the timeline of questions. Well, we only had like 1992, like 93 with the chronic. And I got like another, I got like another two decades worth of questions to ask you about your contributions. And I want to hear, and, and you've been so insightful and I, and I hear your passion as a DJ. I have so many more questions now that I want to ask you about the current climate of music and what you hear from West Coast artists too. So what is your schedule like? So maybe we could put this into like maybe a two or three part series because I don't want to shortchange you. And I don't want to shortchange our people with the opportunity to learn some more stuff from and about you. Like, I would like to pull up on you the next couple of Mondays at the same time, if possible. Absolutely. Yeah, that's can we? Now because I got Skype now and I didn't even have Skype. <laughs> no, that's perfect. If if it works for you, I'd like to maybe uh, block out the next two Mondays so we can do a second part and a third part so to really cover. Yeah, we're live. Oh, you got a chat room going somewhere. Yeah, yeah. No, no, no. We're live in the chat. Like, I haven't looked in the room because I've been, like, immersed in the conversation with you. But we got roughly... Yeah, yeah, that's what's up. I'll be... I'm welcome, man. Let's get it done. I'll be back until it's done. Wherever you catch me, if you don't mind me moving around, I might be at the soundstage. I'll get a tripod and we'll make it work. 
I'm about to say, fam, I don't care where you are, man. This is for the culture, and it's a beautiful thing. I want to um, I want to briefly talk some doggy style before we get out of here. I think that's kind of a great place to end. So after the massive success that is the chronic, you know, can I ask? So the, so the chronic is over. Is it like immediately in go mode about doggy style? See, my questions are behind the scenes. It's like it's like man. the chronic done and niggas is like, OK, we just made a classic, but it's time to go make another. Man, look. So we making these records. We preparing for a tour. We building a stage. We chasing chicks. We eat now, bro. We are moving, bro. It ain't no, yeah, we, we got a high record. Yeah, we got a high record. We on stage. <laughs> so right. what we were doing was as soon as we finish the chronic, we go to Det- we go to Detroit. Bang. We on the road. Detroit, Chicago, New York, like six city tour real quick. We hit that off. We come back, and now we building the stage. For the chronic tour, because we're gonna go in the summer. So now we're getting set for the chronic tour. It's April. We go to the studio and do Snoop's first song, Who Am I? What's my name? And so we go in there, we leave it on tour in like May. So we do this song and I do like so on this song. Um, this is May of '93. May of '93. '92. May of '92. Okay. When did that album come out? '93. Yeah, this might be April of '93. Okay. That's what I'm thinking. So, but no, 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 no. This '92. I'm gonna tell you why. When we went on the Chronic tour, they made us take Westwood One SSL Studio with us. It was a fucking diesel with a 48-track SSL to record Snoop's album. And that's the only person who used that album was Daz. That, that, we never went in the studio. Daz was in that bad boy all the time. I think that's when he sharpened his shit up. So Daz probably did them tracks while we was on the road. That show got cut, that tour got cut short in Detroit when uh, the comedians stole the van and the cops were there, so everybody escaped out to the different cities and the tour got canceled. And then we went home and did Who Am I? As soon as you do Who Am I, we got some more dates to go out. The, the hits the radio. Somebody bootlegged it, leaked to the radio, and now we got to finish this dude's album. Like, yo, we need this album done now. It's out. So, but like on that Who Am I record, Emmanuel Dean is playing most of the keyboards, and I'm the talk box on there. So people don't even know that. That part that goes, E-I-I-I-I-I-I, that dog pounds in the house. That's all me. Like, wow. so if I have been on, I'll be Nate, dog. I'll be on stage with the mic. Like, y'all would know me if I have jumped up. <laughs> that was a hit record. No, it's I'm big. Video, doing my parts. Bow, no, bow, that, bow, that, that record is massive. Bow, bow, bow. Yo, 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 yo. <laughs> so, so you, yeah, you've literally cool. done some of everything that needs to get done to make the record get done. Can't Down to the that. talk box. Project manager, bro, got to turn it in. And it's going to no, be no, forever. No, no. So that's another thing we knew, that stuff is forever. Nah, man, mix that again. We mix songs five times, eight times. Woo! I introduced Dre to the SSL. He didn't know about that. Well, <clears throat> all of us used to say coming from the South that what made the West Coast stand out was the sounds that you were using, but the crispness of the mix and the mastering, the engineering process was supreme. That was, see the difference from the chronic, from the that was the SSL. Sound so different. I, I told him, I said, you need to, you mixing where? 
you do that over there. Nah, man, you got to come. Remember, I brought him out of Compton, bro. I brought him to the studios, too. I showed him Can-Am studio. I was working there. Oh, you're the Can-Am connect. Isn't that where he made most of the stuff at? Most of the stuff went down in Can-Am, right? The most of the death row stuff went down in Can-Am with Tupac. We didn't go there. We worked other places. We always was in West Hollywood where the bitches was at. We was with uh, Larrabee, Encore. We not fucking going all the way out to Reseda. Right. Nah, bro. We used Dolan to. Dolan 101. I was doing that because that was the dopest studio around, and it was uh, the pricing was better. But I'd rather be here at Prince's Larrabee where Prince would be. <laughs> so, right. Yeah. You know, that's the difference. I forgot that part. Yeah, I turned him on to the SSL and automation and showed him that thing, and he went crazy. I didn't teach him how to work it. He just got on it and was good, <laughs> like me. When I got on, I was like, oh, I learned about it from Motown. I, so I was in a group called the Motor City Crew with Benny Medina and Carrie Gordy. I was the DJ. And <laughs> we got a song called Let's Break. Benny Medina was... <laughs> Benny Medina, the Benny Medina. Yeah, Benny Medina and Carrie and, Gordy. And, and Carrie Gordy, who's bad, but yeah. that's his mom's name. He Carrie Gordy. So that's where I saw first the first uh need board, actually. I was using SSL already because um let me see in the 80. I I saw it with I think Quincy Jones showed me that SSL board, to be honest with you. <laughs> I'm not even sure what room I was. Oh no, it was Lou Silas. <clears throat> You know, from Lou Silas to me to Dr. Dre. I mean, I think that's a great place to stop. <laughs> <laughs> I think that's enough for the day, Glove. Introducing okay, Drake to the SSL is enough to give us, to like, that's our record right now. Yeah, no, we definitely got to pull up and wrap this up. I need, we, we need to talk some more. I thank you um, so much. Uh, for coming on here. If we can do this again at the same time next Monday, please let's I'll do it. In. We'll do the email. Yeah, 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 yeah. No, I'm going to shoot you a line. Thank you so much for everything. This was a fabulous conversation. It was so insightful. I learned so much from you just now. Thank you, man. I appreciate that. I got more. <laughs> oh, no, 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 no. We're going to get to more. I mean, we just now getting the doggy style. There's layers. And, yeah, you're right. And, and I'm, I'm going to tell you something, too. I got personal reasons, too. Now, my family's from Newcastle and Youngstown. Now, y'all took all the Pittsburgh producers, Mel, Scooby, Butter, Sam. Yeah, we're going to talk about it. We're going to talk about how yeah, you took all the Pittsburgh Mel, niggas. I, 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 they, I, he wouldn't have came here if I hadn't got on the phone. Dre was like, cancel that dude. He ain't coming. Get rid of his ticket. And I got on the phone with Mailman and asked him some questions. I don't want to end on Mailman, so let's end on Dre. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. We'll hit we'll right there. We'll talk about it. <laughs> all right, baby. Boy, I'll talk to y'all in a minute then. Right. Yeah, yeah. I'm going to shoot you an email, Glove. Appreciate you, fam. Hey, man. Love it, man. Thank you both. No, thank you, brother. Appreciate it. All right. Take care, guys. I'm going to look at that chat. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. Jump in the chat.